Caro, and welcome to episode 29 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is one of the best songwriters I know who happens to write and perform music for kids, Justin Roberts. He is a four-time Grammy nominee and has a new album, Space Cadet, coming later this year. And he'll preview a couple of these tracks live in this conversation. Justin's songs are insightful, intuitive, funny, and very catchy. He's been called the Paul McCartney of children's music in USA Today and the Judy Bloom of Kitty Rock in the New York Times. His website says he makes music for kids and their grown-ups, but you don't need to have a child around to enjoy it. Justin grew up in Des Moines, Iowa and attended Kenyon College in Ohio before moving to Minneapolis to play in an indie rock band with a ridiculous name, Pimentos for Gus. At the same time, he worked as a preschool teacher and wrote some songs for his young students. He shared them with his college friend, Liam Davis, who also worked as a producer and would later perform in the Chicago power pop band, Frisbee. Liam was enthusiastic and the two of them recorded these songs to create Justin's acclaimed first album, Great Big Sun. Early in the morning, just when you get up, you look out the window to see what's up and behind the tree. What is it that you see? Sure looks funny to me before you get out But you say, oh my gosh, it's a great big sun, it's a great big sun And you say, oh He was released gosh, in 1997 a and a career was born. Say, Justin studied religion at the University of Chicago before deciding to devote all his energy to making music. His second album, Yellow Bus, came out in 2001 and featured the instant crowd favorite, Willie Was a Whale. Willie Was a Whale on the water and it tried to be wolf and it tried to be tough but well it wasn't well it was it wasn't what it all it was a really white whale and it walked on the water oh yeah not nap time released a year later includes such instant sing-alongs as nightlight brontosaurus got a sweet tooth brontosaurus got a sweet tooth something to see and Billy the Bully. The albums kept coming, Way Out, Meltdown, Pop Fly, and his audience kept growing, literally. But there were always more kids to enjoy his lively shows with his band, but not ready for naptime players. Justin released all of his albums independently and continues to do so, which makes his industry success all the more impressive. His 2010 album, Jungle Gym, was the first to receive a Grammy nomination for Best Musical Album for Children. Aside from playful songs, such as Trick or Treat, it includes one that conveys the anxiety of a kid getting separated from his mom in a mall, never getting lost. When I turn And Sign My Cast, about a boy who feels sorry for himself after breaking his arm until he realizes he's enjoying the attention. I won't have this thing forever, so you better get here fast. If you even want the slightest chance to sign my Justin received Grammy nominations in the same category for 2013's Recess, 2016's Lemonade, and 2020's Wildlife. That last album was the first one that he wrote after becoming a parent himself, and it reflects all of the excitement, anticipation, and uncertainty that accompanies leading a new person into the world. It's a wildlife, 
What you gonna do with it? Justin also has written two acclaimed picture books, The Smallest Girl in the Smallest Grade and The Great Henry Hopendauer. He also wrote a stage musical based on Hansel and Gretel that toured the U.S. in 2018, and another musical is in the works. He also has been a visiting artist with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Justin and I spoke in the sunny living room of his Evanston home over some excellently made coffee pour-overs amid his records and turntable. He digs into the craft of songwriting and his ability to write from a kid's perspective without ever seeming patronizing. Does he distinguish between songs he writes for children and adults? How does he continue to thrive as a kid's artist when his listeners keep getting older? How much has parenthood changed his writing? How much did the pandemic change his writing? No matter your age, you're sure to enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Justin Roberts. Make a way Make a wild way through this wild life that's given you to run and play. Hey, Justin. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Good. These things never start in any sort of graceful way, anyway. So, um, so we're in your room. We got your uh, you got your turntable and all your records set up behind you. Uh, that's pretty cool. I uh, got Nick Drake's fruit tree box and the smile box. Um, how have you been? I've been doing pretty well. Um, yeah, it's been a strange couple of years, uh, being a touring musician with the pandemic, but, uh, managed to work on a new record and, uh, finish some picture book projects that I've been working on, uh, for Putnam and, Hopeful that uh, start playing more live performances coming up in the summer and fall. So we're in a nice, bright living room here. Uh, do you do you make music here, or do you just sort of listen to music in this room? This is definitely a listening environment, and uh, yeah, we wanted to make a room where the music is the primary focus. Uh, so we have a stereo, and our television is in the basement. Um, and it's definitely a place that we have a three-year-old named Eli who loves listening to music. And it's a place where we have dance parties with him. And uh, the evenings are usually filled with something playing on the stereo. Do you have a space where you usually write? Yeah, I usually write in the basement. Uh, I have an office down there and I have uh, recording equipment to do demos. And I'm generally writing on the computer. I don't like sit down with an acoustic guitar too often and write songs. Although sometimes that will happen. Most likely I sit down with a computer and think about the bass line or the drums first or something else, and then add in the guitars or add in keyboards or whatever. But I like to write on the computer because if I hear an extra harmony in my head or I hear a, a melody for a different instrument, I can kind of put it on a demo and, and write that way. So it's, yeah. So what is it you're using? Are you using like GarageBand? I'm using Logic, uh, which is, you know, Apple's pro recording software. Um, and I'm not an expert in recording for sure, <laughs> as anyone who's heard my demos can tell. But uh, it's a great way for me to get the ideas down. And um, I've been doing that, I think, ever since I started doing it maybe with Popfly, which... I should know the dates of records, but maybe that was 2008, um, a little bit, but especially after that with jungle gym and recess and lullaby and everything since I've pretty much done demos of most every song on the record before recording it. So, so are you composing it on the computer? 
Yeah. Yeah. So you're actually coming up with like the music, the melody and all that while sitting at a keyboard. Yeah. And, and, you know, rudimentary drum parts, like, which aren't always translatable for Gerald to play, but like just the idea sometimes. And I'm always, you know, Gerald has like amazing ideas of how to actually play the drums, but sometimes he takes the ideas that I don't think he's going to take and plays them the way they are on the demo because he likes it. But we're talking about Gerald Dowd, yeah. uh, drummer extraordinaire in Chicago, who's played with a lot of great people, including Justin Roberts. Such an amazing drummer and singer in person. So what comes to you first when you're writing then? Are you is, are you sort of just fiddling around? I, I didn't picture you, especially because you have so many sort of lovely sort of acoustic guitar songs. I pictured you kind of sitting on a hill in the grass with your acoustic guitar and the birds and butterflies going by you. And then you like having a lovely melody going to your head, not sitting in a basement on a computer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even with things like wildlife, which was the record that I put out, um, prior to the pandemic, which is a very intimate acoustic record, even that, uh, the songs were written on the computer. Like I, I would, have a um a little melody idea and the first thing i do is lay down some kind of a drum track that will go with what i'm doing and i may take it out afterwards but you know i'm i'm trying to record to like a certain rhythm and i'll lay down the acoustic guitar and then i'll put down a vocal and then i'll do piano and then i'll you know add a bass line or whatever um but even those songs that are really intimate I usually am composing them on the computer. So, so where in the process is the title concept and lyrics? The lyrics, I would, I mean, I'm one of those people when someone asks like what comes first, neither is the answer because I, I sing while I'm writing, uh, the lyrics. So the melody is really intertwined with, uh, the words the whole time. And sometimes it's nonsense lyrics. Uh, I thought like the best example of that was that, um, Paul McCartney thing where he's writing get back and he's just like mumbling stuff. Right. You know, it's like, that's really accurate for what it's like, but sometimes a little lyric will get in there. And then once you have that lyric, you're just sort of following a story and, and letting it tell itself. And, uh, you know, I'm often trying to think, make sure that there's a lot of detail and a lot of imagery in what I'm writing. And, you know, that will lend itself to, what happens in the story. But at that moment where you're on the computer figuring out that drum part or where the background vocals are going to come in, do you know the concept of the song at the, by then? Or are you still kind of feeling that out as well? Oh, just feeling it out for sure. Don't, don't know at all. Um, there's a, a somewhat silly song on the new record called dance party. That is a very beach boysy, um, kind of song. And that one started with a voice memo where I just sang a melody in the voice memo and it was just like, you know, ba, 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 ba. And I was like, okay, I don't know what that is. And then I was listening back to it and I was like, oh, I like that. And so, you know, I sat down on the computer and started figuring out, um, a drum part that would go with this. And then, uh, and then, yeah, then figured out a bass line and then added the vocal and started singing words. And because we'd been doing a bunch of dance parties in our living room, that, you know, that came about and I was thinking about how Eli's always trying to get us to clear out the furniture and throw the cushions on the floor. And, um, and there's a little jokiness of a dad being on a phone and, and finally getting rid of his phone to dance and like that sort of thing. So that's very autobiographical, of, you know, being distracted and, uh, finally getting into the child 
uh, world, which is such a wonderful place to be. I was talking to your friend, uh, Robbie Folks, who says that he, he does not write songs unless he has to, unless he has a pro unless he has a project an album coming up, he will not just sort of like, he won't be like, you know, just walking around and going, Oh, here's a song I have to write. He will only write when he has to. How is that with you? 100% agree. Um, I, I tend to write like for several months, uh, for a project, for an album or, or for something. And then I don't really write at all when I'm putting together an album or working on trying to get tour dates together or doing anything else. Uh, and it's only when there's something hanging over my head. And I mean, sometimes I'll create my own deadlines to do it, but, um, yeah, I have to be kind of forced into writing. Uh, I've never, I mean, I, I respect people who like are constantly carrying around a journal and writing things down, but I think I have to be in the mood of writing songs to be doing that. And when I am, then I am recording voice memos when I'm driving around and I might sing something in my head. Um, I just recently was like trying to clear stuff off my laptop and I found some voice memos from like 2010 or something. And it was like the beginning of the song gym class parachute. And it's like, kind of like the intro to the song, but not really. And it's funny to hear just me in the car, like singing this really weird thing and knowing that it turned into a song. We thought this day was never gonna come. We square dance for months. We walked balance speed. We tumbled in teams. Now it's being dragged across the floor From sea to shining shore Here it comes, here it comes Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes So obviously for years you've been known as a kids musician and you have four Grammy nominations and the uh, best album for kids, which is pretty awesome. And... Uh, Wildlife, your last album, was the first one that you recorded as a parent, and it's sort of more about, at least as much about being a parent as it is about being a kid. Uh, so what's the new one? Um, is like, What's the perspective on that? Is it more parent or kid? Uh, I'd say it's more kid. It's, it's, it's much more, I mean, I'd say 80% of the tracks, uh, I thought about them in terms of playing them with my band, which is the Not Ready for Naptime Players, which is... Uh, Gerald Dowd on drums, Jacqueline Schimmel on bass, uh, Liam Davis on electric guitar, and uh, Dave Weiner on trumpet and keys. Um, awesome so I, band. Yeah. So I thought a lot about them when I was writing the songs. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think there, it's just a lot more upbeat and rock and that sort of thing. But whenever you have like a vision of what you're doing for a record, you just sort of have to follow what happens. And so there are, there's a, there's two ballads on it. Uh, one of which is like harp and upright bass, which is John Abbey on bass. Um, and, uh, and some horns on that, but like, and that has no drums. And like, as I'm writing, like, I just, I try to follow what, what I'm feeling. And if something catches me, I don't think, Oh, I shouldn't write this because it doesn't fit on the record. I just do it. And then, um, and then figure out how to make the whole album work, which I think maybe a lot of people don't think about that anymore because it's such a single oriented world, but I really like albums and how they flow. And, you know, we got to the point 
in uh, December, we'd finished nine tracks for the album. And I knew I had to write a few more, but I was all thinking about like, what do I need to balance out what I have so far? And, uh, you know, and then you just keep writing and hope, hope you find those songs. So, so early on when you were writing your albums, a lot of the, the song ideas were coming out of sort of you going back in your memories to what it felt like to be in certain situations when you were a kid, whether it's being lost in a store or breaking your arm and having a cast or whatever else. Um, how much of what you're writing now is still based on your memories and how much of it is based on now you're observing your own child and what he's going through? Yeah. I mean, like, as I said, dance party is certainly a, a dual perspective kind of thing. It's his vision of me, <laughs> you know, somewhat, uh, you know, and totally reflects like what we do most nights in our house. Um, but there's still, uh, you know, there's this, the title track is a song called Space Cadet, which is about somebody who is a very distracted person, uh, which very much fits, like, from the time that I was a kid. My teacher called me an absent-minded professor, which I think was just a 1970s way of saying ADHD or something, you know, <laughs> just a really distracted person. That is a, that is a nice way of saying it, it though, is. you know, like, if you're going to be a, if you're gonna, you'll be a space cadet, you might as well be an absent-minded professor. Exactly. So... There's a song about that, which is was very easy to write because I think about, you know, how easily distracted I am by things. But also, uh, you know, the other side of that is you get really invested and in, you can get really focused, like strongly, strongly focused in something. And I think that's the kind of experience I have when I'm writing a song that I'm feeling good about is I just lose track of time and forget to eat and all of that. Um, so sometimes I can pay super, you know, as I say in this book, super extra special attention. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, there's, so there's songs like that, which are very much like me thinking about my childhood, even on this record. Um, but I think the main thing is, uh, I'm always trying to write something that means something to me as an adult, even if it is reflecting on my childhood, it has to have like an emotional resonance that moves me. Uh, even if it's a somewhat silly song, I want to, you know, get at something that that uh, is moving to me as an adult. And, you know, I try not to think too much about what may or may not be popular with kids and just try to write a really good song. And, um, you know, if I see what Eli gravitates to because he hears the demos of things that I'm working on, which I never had that before. Right. Like, have a yeah, child. Was, <laughs> yeah. He's, as he gets older, he's going to be more and more of your like test market. Yeah. And I think like, you know, one of the later songs that I wrote for this record is, um, is like a, uh, Billy Joel, Elton John piano ballad with, you know, full drums and strings. And, uh, it's called whole lot of love in this world. And it's, you know, much more of what I think of as being kind of a grown up song, but a lullaby ish type thing. And, uh, you know, as we're driving around, uh, and he will request, demos and songs from the new record he started requesting that one and i was like wow that's weird i would not think a three-year-old would want to hear that song but he likes it and he likes like the string arrangement that andrew fox did on it and there's a part where it's really exciting and he's like i like that part <laughs> so it's fun just to hear what kids respond to and know that it's i think the big misconception that that some people making music for children might have is that uh, kids like certain things. And I think you shouldn't start from there that you should write things that you, you are proud of and want to listen to yourself and, and let kids discover what they will, because, you know, 
I grew up listening to my brother's Beatles records and uh, I loved that as a kid, but I also loved listening to Schoolhouse Rock and the songs that Bob Dora was writing uh, for that. And, you know, there's just a whole, I listened to the Fantasia soundtrack. I liked the classical music, you know, as a kid, like all that stuff. Um, I think kids are kind of open sponges for, for anything. Yeah. I think that the case you're making is that the vocabulary for making this music is the same as opposed to, you know, just because I'm making music for kids doesn't mean it has to be on like toy instruments and silly voices or something like that. It's more it's more the orientation of who this, you know, what maybe the perspective of the songs as opposed to like the setting of the songs or making them overly, you know, chirpy and juvenile or something like yep. that. That being said, Lisa Kaplan from eighth Blackbird does play toy piano on my new record. Well, toy, I like, I'm a fan of toy piano in, in, in regular, in quote unquote adult music yeah. as well. But it's in other words that it's not just like, Hey kids, but it, it, like you, like, like one of the thing, cool things about your, your records is that they do not sing down or talk down to the audience. They're, they're sort of trying to meet them at eye level or ear level, I should say. Um, and that seems like a, a distinction from at least some other music aimed for kids. Yeah. And I, I don't think like, I, I really appreciate um, music that is super child centric. And I think there's a place for like really simple songs for kids. Uh, absolutely. It's just, you know, I got started in this whole thing cause I was a preschool teacher right out of college and I was playing in a band at night. And just as a 21 year old, I didn't want to like necessarily listen to really simple songs. And so I would start playing kids songs by Sam Cooke and uh, traditional Irish songs and things like that. Um, and they responded to it. And so I started writing songs that I would want to hear and, and they responded to those. And I like that, this was just my way of going about it, but I totally appreciate, especially having, you know, Eli now and watching him experience music, I totally appreciate when he gets into something that is a much simpler style of kids music. That's very child directed. I think there's a place for everything in in kids music. So your adult band, when you were in Minneapolis had one of the more ridiculous band names, (laughs) I mean, as as someone who's like an aficionado of uh, (laughs) ridiculous band names, I appreciate that you actually performed under the name Pimentos for Gus. Yes. Uh, was that your band name, by the way? Did you come up with that? It was uh, a combination uh, between me and Mike Hallenbeck, uh, who was one of the other three members of the band. You um, came up with Pimentos and he came up with Gus? The other way around, but, <laughs> but he, he wanted Pimentos in the title and I wanted Gus in the title. And Gus was a, a name that we used in like high school just to refer to anybody. It could be like a stranger or someone we knew it was just kind of a generic name that we used a lot. So, so, so you're, you're in this band, which is, would you call it an alternative band then? Um, it was a, uh, uh, indie folk band, I guess. I mean, we were in, but like, I don't know, we called ourselves like post punk acoustic or something like that, but it was very influenced by, uh, bands like Camper Van Beethoven because we had a violinist in our group and um, Mike's brother played in a group called Harm Farm that were based uh, Harm Farm. yeah they're amazing uh, that sort of like you know folky prog rock type thing um, with really funny lyrics and it was basically Mike and I and Tracy Spuler, the violinist um, were the three core members but then we had other people that played in the band over the course of the years and um, and 
uh, Liam Davis, who has produced uh, almost all my records, um, was the uh, first person to record us, and he he played percussion with us a little bit. Um, but anyway, yeah, Pimentos for Gus uh, was primarily Mike and I writing songs, and Mike, but he would write sort of more humorous songs. I was writing more ballads. He was writing probably... 10 times as many songs as I was and, and, uh, you know, totally inspiring me to try to push myself to write more, but he's a, a real pro- prolific songwriter. And as I listen back, I just recently, somebody sent me the, the CD release party that we did at Cedar cultural center in 1992 or something like that. And I, I hadn't heard it, you know, since we performed it and I didn't even know anyone recorded it. And, uh, it was amazing to hear and just like, was really blown away by what Mike was writing at that time. And did it sound better or worse than you thought it would? It sounded better than I thought it would. And I, we were kind of tight for being like a weird three piece band, uh, you know, playing acoustic guitars and, and violin. And then we had two members from boiled and lead, which were a Irish rock band from, uh, Minneapolis that joined us, um, on that concert. So it was fun to hear that we had bass and drum or bass and hand percussion. So you're writing songs for pimentos for Gus, but then you're also teaching little kids and then writing songs for them. Did you at some point think I like the songs I'm writing for the little kids more than the songs I'm writing for the adults or I, I didn't think that, but I did think I was having a lot of trouble, you know, writing songs for the band. And as I said, like Mike would write 10 songs and I would write one. And with the kids' music, it was much easier, and it just flowed. And I, you know, I'd never sat down to write a song about an apple tree before, but like because there was context, and like they were talking about apples, and so I would write a song, or you know, they were. I read um, uh, like a Disney version of the Three Little Pigs to the kids at school, and as I was reading it, I was just like, I hate this story. It's a terrible message for children. <laughs> and so I rewrote a song about the Three Little Pigs, where the the biz, you know, the banker businessman pig isn't the hero of the story for like locking out all the things that he's afraid of. Instead, it's the musicians that are running around in the field playing flutes that are like the ones who are actually living life. And it's like, you know, there are things like that where I was just inspired by what was happening in the classroom. And, and also does the big bad wolf still die? Uh, no, he just gets old, I think. Or no, no, it's it's more about the... He gets old and unloved. He's, he's sort of a, a side feature. He's just the fear that, you know, people are trying to lock out. But uh, it's more about the, the brick-laying pig who just time passes and he gets old and sick. <laughs> 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 but uh, um, I think, like, I felt like there was a freedom in writing for kids because, you know, I'd be playing them... Ramon songs or something like that, as long as they were lyrically appropriate. And, uh, they love that and they love punk rock. And so I could write like punk rock and I could, I could do like a ska type song or, you know, just there was a freedom to explore things in kids music that I feel like you wouldn't be able to get away with in another genre sometimes, uh, because it's so fluid in terms of what you can do. And, I mean, I love making references to things that I listen to as an adult in my music, and sometimes people will hear that, and uh, it's fun to just have that freedom to to write in a whole bunch of different genres and and uh, and just do it with no no boundaries like you might have if you're writing in a particular band for adults, you know. So your first kids' album, Great Big Sun, came out in '97. 
which means that if you were five years old listening to that album, you're 30 now. Um, so tell, so tell me about your relationship with your, your audience. Like one thing of, if you're, you know, if you're, uh, you know, putting out your camper van Beethoven records or whatever, you know, you could, you would sort of naturally have maybe the same people listening all the time, but, but because you're, music ostensibly is aimed for a, a certain audience or younger audience, there would be some kind of turnover in there. So like how much continuity is there among your listeners from year to year, decade to decade? Um, it's, it's difficult. Uh, I was um, at one point talking to Mike Berbiglia's brother about this because um, his, his kids had listened to my music and we'd, met on a, a couple occasions and he was talking about the difference between like once Mike grabs someone in college and they become a fan, they become a fan for life and they, they grow up and they might have kids, but they'll still come to concerts and, and see him perform. And famous comedian. Mike yes. Brigler. And, uh, I, I think like, you know, with what I do, you're lucky to have the kids for four or five years before they grow out of it. There are some occasions where, you know, I certainly have kids listening, uh, you know, till they're 10 or 12 or whatever, or rediscovering it when they're older, but you're constantly losing your audience when you're doing kids music in a, in a strange way. Um, you know, the advantage of that, I guess, is like just two days ago, a father, uh, emailed me and said, you know, I'm in my mid fifties and we used to, we grew up listening to your music and coming to concerts in the based in Chicago too. And, uh, and now my kids are having kids and we're getting to rediscover your music again. Wow. And I, I'm so glad that you're still making it and, and all this stuff. So I think there's that, which is just starting to happen to me now, um, which is a, something that you wouldn't experience in another genre, but it's powerful. Like that element of people saying like every, every childhood experience we had with our kids, there was a song that you had that, that went, that was the th- soundtrack to it. Like that sort of thing, knowing that you're taking that place and, in someone's life is amazing. And, you know, I feel that way now watching Eli respond to, you know, my stuff, but also other artists that he listens to. And like, he, he loves, uh, Laurie Berkner and, and just watching, like, you know, he would carry around a postcard of her that she gave to him at Ravinia that we, when we saw her last year and he would just like talk to her and have conversations with this postcard. And sometimes I'd be interpret or uh, impersonating Laurie Berkner in a very high falsetto voice, you know, for the whole day, like, and just like knowing that is happening and knowing that that's probably happened with other kids, you know, impersonating me or whatever the, the case may be. It's such a strong connection when you're a child and the way they respond to music and they were way they respond to the world. And just knowing that you're, playing a part in that exposure to, to what it is to be alive is amazing. When you go back and listen to the songs on those first few albums, and then you think about what you're making for, you know, writing for your new album, you know, 25 years after the first one, how does the new material compare to what you were doing then? Like how much of an evolution has there been? Um, well, certainly like this is my 16th album. If you count, uh, I made two albums of uh, biblical material and a, a grown-up record and a, a musical that we recorded the the cast. Um, but this is my 16th record, and that's a lot of songs when you think about all of that. And and you know, I think about trying to keep it fresh. And I feel like you know, I went from doing 
very folky, um, simple songs in my earliest records to eventually writing for a band uh, once I started playing with the same band members. And then, uh, you know, made a lullaby record with chamber musicians from CSO and, uh, you know, made big rock records. So I'm always trying to make sure I'm not like totally repeating myself, I guess. And the trick to that is that I really love what I was doing early on because there was like a, a simple direct quality to it. And so I think when I made Lemonade, which was six or seven years ago, that was a record where we recorded it live in the studio again, which is what we did early on. And it's all acoustic instruments. And I tried to write really simple songs and I tried instead to, to write on ukulele or, or guitar primarily, even though I did still record demos, um, because I wanted to capture some of that kind of simple directness that my early records had, but I'm often just following whatever the weird muse is inside my head that takes me places. And if something makes me laugh, I will totally go that direction. Or if something makes me feel, you know, choked up while I'm writing it, I know I'm on the right path. So I just try to write things that, that mean something to me. And, and, uh, and, you know, sometimes I think I'm going too far off in a direction that kids are not going to relate to, but I've always discovered that those times where I think I'm doing that, there are kids that relate to it. So I don't think you have to like box yourself in too much. Are there songs where you start writing it for one of these records? And then by the time you're done with a song, kind of like what you're just describing, you think, Oh, I really like this song, but not for this audience. I'm going to put it aside because it's too adult or whatever you would call it. I don't, I just try to fit it into the record somehow. Like, I mean, a really good example of that is wildlife, which is already kind of a, you know, veering on the side of having more of an adult feel to it, even though I consider it uh, a lullabyish record, and it's certainly like a love letter to my son and and my wife and that whole experience. Uh, there's a song on there called "Hide and Seek," which, subject matter wise, seems like it will totally be perfect for a child audience. But I actually wrote it about a friend who is going through a really rough time and it's a pretty intense song and it's totally could be an adult song for sure. Um, but I was like, I love this song and my biggest audience is going to be anyone who's listening to my kids records. So I'm going to find a way to put this on. And, uh, I just did a, uh, Indiegogo campaign for my new record and, you know, did different, different perks. And one of them was handwritten lyrics. And I had some, fans in town that were going to request the song schools out, which is about the last day of school. But then they talked to their kids and their son, uh, was like, they were like, what song would you want him to write the lyrics to? And he said, hide and seek, you know? So like, I just, you don't, you never know, like whatever I think, you know, sometimes I write things. I think kids are really going to get into this and they don't. <laughs> and other times you write something, you think kids are not going to care about this and you'll find there are kids that do. And like, it's so you know, the richness of what, what a child experiences in their emotional life, it just shouldn't be denied. It, 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 it's very, uh, similar to what, you know, any of us go through and they have that same depth of emotion and they can hear things and ask questions about things. And, um, I think it's amazing for me to have experienced that as a musician who has fans and I get a lot of great feedback from families, but I've also had 
the experience of my own son, like talking to me about a song or, I mean, he's, he was listening to a song off wildlife, uh, many months ago and, and just started breaking into tears during the bridge. And I was like, Oh, what's wrong? And he's like, and he just, he said, it was like, he felt bad about crying. And I was like, Oh, that's what music does. Like it can really hit you. And, and, uh, yeah. And it was, it was really powerful. And then like, after that, we had a discussion. It was the song, I've Got the World for You. And uh, I was telling him that, you know, when I, I've had experiences where music makes me cry. That's what's great about music. It's so powerful. And and he said to me, he whispered, I've got the world for you. And I was Aww. like, what? He said, I've got the world for you. And, he, and then I said, are you telling that to me? Or are you, are you wanting, requesting the song? And he said, I'm telling it to myself. Wow. <laughs> so like that is like totally amazing. That's like, awesome. It's so crazy. This is like, like, you just stop right there. You're like, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. I'm done. That's it. I, I have more to say, but yeah. really it's all gravy now. Yeah. But that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I mean, that just blows my mind, but it's also like, it just shows what a richness kids have. And, you know, that song is a song I wrote um, when Anna was still pregnant and it was sort of a song to, to the future Eli and like, it's certainly a song I think of more as a parent experiencing it and, and feeling it, but like he's three, he gets it, he gets what the song's about. He likes the weird bridge in three, four. And like, that's, that's the great. Part that, like, well, we're, I mean, we're here too. in your living room and you know, I'm like looking at your, your rows of albums, your vinyl LPs, and then you also have CDs up there. And for Eli, it's just sort of natural that, yeah, there are all these records and my dad made a bunch of them and I could sort of put in, the Beach Boys uh, in the CD player, or I could put Dad in the CD player. Yeah, like like, how is that for him and for you? Like, it's just sort of like something that's just sort of a given for him. That oh yeah, oh yeah, Dad's part of that. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. I don't think he knows anything else, and it's also been the pandemic, so he's he's witnessed me like you know performing to a camera in the basement, and that's like the, <laughs> the experience of live music. Um, but I I love watching. I mean, I do try to like introduce him to things or just, I want to listen to something else sometimes. Uh, so I will put on something and he'll, he'll either, you know, he can be like, I don't want to hear that. And then you, you know, you put him put on De La Soul or something and he's like, eh, I think I might like this or, you know, nice. like, it's like, it's fun to just see what he responds to. And, uh, I think it's made listening to music even more enjoyable for me having other ears. And, um, we got on a real Donald bird kick. I bought like a record from the mid seventies by him. And it, it's perfect for like dance party stuff. And I put it on, but then he just started requesting it all the time. What is that? That one album. And I'd pull it out and he'd see the cover. He'd be like, yeah, that. <laughs> and just like, it's, it's great. I just, it's fun to experience music through, um, through somebody else. And I have even more media in my basement and a bunch of a huge CD collection. And he will go down there like every few days and just randomly pick out records that he wants to hear. And like, it'll just be things I haven't heard for a long time. And recently it was, um, Surfer Rosa, the Pixies record. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I was like, I don't think he's going to dig this. And then like little, little, little do I know three days later, we're like listening to Surfer Rosa at like 9am, you know, like, <laughs> like just like hmm, breakfast music and he's way into it. So like, it's funny. He's like, he's like, Albini got a great drum sound exactly. on this album. <laughs> I think that I think the audience question is interesting too because I think that like 
the great artists or the successful ones at least are the ones who kind of bring the audiences along with them and the ones and again this is a vast generalization but a lot of times the ones who sort of stumble are are the ones where they think oh my fans my audience want me to do this again like here's something for you and i think that would be a really easy trap to fall into especially for kids music because they're like oh all right what what you know it's like you sort of like think what kid what would kids like oh, i think they'd like a song about slurpees or something like yeah. that and i think that that keeping that um orientation about like you you relating to something that you think others will share as opposed to you sort of imposing it on the listener. Like this is what, this is what you're going to like. That seems like a, a key distinction. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, it's not, I will be honest. It's not like I don't think, you know, I should maybe write a song about this because the subject matter probably will initially perk the ears of a child, but I don't think I can follow through with writing a song that doesn't have some kind of emotional meaning to me. So like on the new record, I had the idea of writing a song about unicorns, which I'm sure I'm not the first person to do that in the children's music world. But as I started writing it, it became a, a pretty serious song. I mean, it's a really funny song and and a fun song, but uh, it became a song kind of about identity and about being who you are and it's called I Have Been a Unicorn and it's about the trials and tribulations of, of being who you are and, and how that can be difficult in the world. Ever since the day that I was born I have been a unicorn with my rainbow hair and my golden horn I have been a unicorn This whole horn section on it, and I had uh, Lisa Kaplan playing toy piano and piano, and I had um, Jason Adashevitz, who's an amazing uh, oh, yeah. jazz vibe player, on it. And so, you know, as it got to this, and also Gerald um, in the studio was like, do you want this kind of circusy three fours waltz thing? And do you want it circusy or kind of jazz? And I was like, I'll start it off circusy and then kind of let it go into that. And so we had this backing track where Gerald is playing circusy on the first half and then goes off. And so I had every single musician that came in for other parts just go free jazz at the end. Wow. And uh, uh, 
yeah, it just turned out so incredibly amazing. Uh, it's, you know, it's just the outro as it fades, but it's like everyone goes in their own distinct direction, much like what the song's about. And it's cool to like kind of match that stuff with what you're doing. So, so that when you started with the idea of unicorn, you did not start with the idea of, I want to write a song about identity or something. No, like no, that. not at all. So the themes came, the themes grew out of this, you know, the more fanciful, like unicorn song. Yeah. And I think like with that one, I, you know, I went through like four different versions of, of songs with similar lyrics, but the first thing was a ballady song, uh, which is just what I started writing. But, um, I think I, I came up, you know, it's not like often I let rhyme lead me in what I'm doing. And I came up with, uh, ever since the day that I was born, I have been a unicorn Mm. and then, you know, sort of let the story tell itself from there. And I mean, one of the, one of the things I love about writing with rhyme is it just sort of takes you in places you wouldn't normally go and like tells, tells a story that you wouldn't have expected. So I think oftentimes I'm just kind of seeing where that goes. Um, so the, so the past several years have been pretty rough for a lot of people. And, you know, obviously we're, we're trying to come out of this pandemic, you know, who knows, uh, we've had, you know, an insurrection we've had, you know, a lot of, you know, officials just lying blatantly about things and, and just a, a lot of stuff to sort of process for us and, and for our kids. Um, how much has your writing reflected that like these times that we've been going through um i think it it does come out uh, i'm trying to think of examples of that on the new record uh i mean there's a there's a song called um everybody get on board which is the final song on the record and it's a ballad and it's very um much the metaphor taken from curtis mayfield <laughs> of the train and and that that sort of thing. But, um, it, uh, it has a line. Um, it starts off with, you don't even need a ticket for the train. Everybody get on board. Listen, how they're calling out your name. Everybody get on board. But then there's a line, there's some lines in the middle, uh, where it's like, uh, we got the sugar and the lime, but we only got so much time. So why take a rigid stance when you could grab a partner, learn to dance, maybe play an open chord so everyone can get on board. And that's maybe partially like the, about all the, the ways people judge each other and create division and, uh, just wanting the idea of like, we have this one life, like why are people, uh, uh, you know, creating so much chaos in the world and not right. accepting other people and accepting who, you know, just, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to express, but I'm sure that song came out of a lot of that, um, that emotion. Or any sort of, you know, pandemic song that's entered your head. You're like, I'm going to write a pandemic song. Nah, this isn't really yeah, happening. I, that I've seen other people do that. And I think maybe there's, maybe there's a need for that to, uh, you know, to explore those issues. But, um, for me, I, yeah, I just have, it doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me to do that. Um, but I could see it being helpful to, to kids if, you know, if someone had the way to do it, but I also kind of want to just like <laughs> hopefully get beyond this and not, not have a record that has something 
so dated on it that it isn't universal appeal. Have you self-released all of your albums? Like, have you been your own record company all this time? I have. Yeah. Uh, there were times where I, uh, considered, uh, working with a label, but, um, it never totally made sense. Uh, because I think when I got to a point where, um, you know, it's one of those things like when you're first starting off, you're like, and this was in, you know, 97, when the idea of distribution was like physical media going places. Um, but like you're searching for a distributor who will distribute your records, but like there isn't a demand. So why would a distributor want to distribute your records? But then once there is a demand, you know, a distributor comes along and says, Hey, you know, and that basically what happened was I was, uh, you know, supplying, um, records to, uh, stores, you know, local stores and things like that. And, um, Land of Nod, which was a children's furniture company at the time. Um, and also had a, uh, owner who's a huge music fan that I ended up becoming friends with, um, Scott Ehrenberg, uh, you know, started, they started carrying my CDs in their stores. They put a couple of my songs on some compilations they put together and, uh, you know, they were selling really well in his store. And so he talked to a distributor that was working with some other artists about me. And, uh, you know, she gave me a call and, uh, that was maybe 2004 or five and I had distribution. Uh, and so when labels started, uh, expressing interest, I had really good distribution through a major distributor and, uh, it didn't make a lot of sense to, it didn't make economic sense truthfully because I was selling a lot of music and I was doing it myself and I was manufacturing it and sending it to distributor and I didn't have the middleman of a label. And so it never made sense, uh, to give away so much of the ownership over the recordings to a, to a label. Uh, and I think like the time that that was about to happen was about when the music industry kind of collapsed on itself. So I think I probably made a good decision <laughs> because it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Um, because it's so much different now. Um, at the time when, when, you know, things were selling well, it, there was, it was a lot of manufacturing and a lot of things coming to my house, to my front door and me shipping them off to other places and all that stuff. Um, which was a lot of, you know, physically dragging things around, which is sort of a funny thing to think about that to be doing. But, um, uh, I think like, you know, I also write picture books for Putnam and that's a whole different experience where all of the manufacturing and all of the publicity and all the things is in someone else's hands. And that is really wonderful. Like I feel I can totally understand why someone might want to do that with the music too, but having control over it, you have a little bit more say on, how quickly things are going to get done, every decision about, you know, what the cover art's going to look like and, you know, how you're going to, you know, what songs are going to go on it. You don't have anyone telling you what to Where's do. Where's the single? Not to do. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and, you know, for better or worse, you know, maybe there's an advantage to that. But like, um, I think, uh, you know, it's been, I think it's been a good experience doing it myself and, um, do you physically mail them out yourself or do you have someone who helps you with that at least? I, I, you know, from the, the, the orders for my website, I do physically mail them out myself. Uh, but, um, with the distributor, you know, often like when I order, uh, product, 
some of it is just directly shipped to the manufacturer instead of coming to me. Um, but you know, at the time when, when there was a lot more physical product going through the system, there'd certainly be times where I'd get orders from the distributor saying they needed more product. And, you know, I have a basement full of, right. <laughs> of a lot of inventory and I would send out inventory or I'd order more if I was running out. How, how much has the sort of medium changed on like how people order it? Like when you started out, it was probably mostly CDs. Now there's more you know, downloads and all that, yeah. but, but also vinyls back. I'm not sure if you're doing vinyl I, on these, this new record or. I don't think I am, but I did vinyl on uh lullaby and wildlife and it was more just that those two records are very, uh, kind of like, I don't know, seventies moody <laughs> records. And I feel like they, they would sound really good on vinyl. And I think they do. Um, but, uh, it's hard, I think in a, you know, in every other genre, that is a huge selling point. But I think in kids' music, it's such a delicate medium that it isn't it isn't really good for kids. Even CDs get scratched and things when when kids are using them. Right. But um, so yeah. So I think it's you know I I actually thought a little bit about whether I would even manufacture any CDs, and I think I am going to do some, but not a lot because most people listen to streaming and uh, and digital downloads. Um, so the whole purpose of making a record, I mean, certainly it's to create art and have people, um, listen to new music and, and have new music to play live and all those things. But, um, it used to be a big part of the business side of what I did was making, making records and selling them was like, was like everything. So now it's more, um, you know, I do. I'm thankful to have like a really awesome fan base who will support campaigns to help finance the recordings. Cause it costs a lot of money to pay musicians and pay studios, uh, to make a record. And especially, you know, I kind of want to be able to, to like do anything that I hear inside my head and have the best musicians in, in Chicago and beyond play on them. And so, right. you know, making a record is a, a huge endeavor and it's a lot of time and everything else. But, um, so now it's kind of turned into more of that as the method for me to be able to do it. It used to be I could make a record and I knew that I would sell a number of copies to make my money back and make more for the next record and all of that. It sort of funded itself, but with streaming, there's no way that would happen. Yeah, how much of your music is now, as far as you could tell, being consumed on like you know Spotify, Apple Music? Because because yeah, the rates. I think I, I think I interviewed you first story about that like many years ago at the Tribune about like just sort of the 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 royalties you get for the streaming is just not where it should be. Yeah, I mean, it's you just all you have to do is figure out the math of if somebody, you know, buys a CD for ten or fifteen dollars from me, and then how many streams it would take for them to pay me 10 or $15 through Spotify. And they would be, it would be like a full-time job for a year or something. I don't know, but it would be a lot of straight listening or putting it on every night. And uh, so, yeah, it just doesn't, I think like it can, you know, it's obviously working for big giant record labels and huge pop artists that are getting millions and millions of things. But I think in genres that are more um, specific, I, you know, I think of like jazz and things like that. It's like, it has really hardcore audience and people that would go out and see shows and in past purchase a CD or, or a vinyl record. Um, but it's kind of a small audience. It's not like pop music where it's, 
millions and millions of of listens. And I think genres like that um, aren't served well from the way that streaming is being done. I think if it were being paid out according to like what people listen to every month and they took the $7 from your subscription that goes out to the record labels and they paid it to the artists that someone was listening to, it'd be a whole different world, but it's not how it works. Yeah. It seems like a lot of, a lot of artists are sort of, you'll go on their websites and they'll have all these bundles of, you know, ways that you can basically support them where you'll have, you know, you could stream the record or you could buy the hundred dollar package with the t-shirts and the, you know, the signed colored vinyl and all of this. Like, do you have some sort of merch operation going on or not Uh, really? I mean, I mean, I do have tons of merch on my, on my website. I think like, uh, so far I've just kind of front loaded that stuff of like getting people to, um, support the campaign. So certainly like, I was gonna say your Indiegogo thing obviously is different levels and packages. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, people will, you know, purchase a, a CD and a t-shirt and get their name in the credits or something like that for way more than they would pay if they were just to buy a CD after I put it out, or if they were to listen to it on streaming or, or download it from, from some service. But, um, I think like, uh, you know, I've, I mean, I've done this too, where I've supported campaigns or I've, I've bought like a bundle when someone's making a record, knowing that you're just, you're basically supporting the artist and wanting to like make sure that music is getting in the world and knowing how hard it is to do that. So, um, you know, I listen to streaming like anyone else, but I'm a big advocate of, of buying physical media, especially from artists that I know, you know, it's helpful when you do that. Or if I really love something, I I want a physical copy of it. I think there's, it maybe shows that I'm an old person, but, uh, no, I feel the same way. There's something magical. Like even now, you know, having Eli listening to music, if it's just all in my streaming computer, he's not going to discover it like he does now when he goes in the basement and he's like, what's this? And I'm like, I look at it and it's a completely white cover. I'm like, that's the white album by the Beatles. You want to hear it? And he's like, yeah, because <laughs> like, he's like, looks at it and it's that's just great. weird, you know, <laughs> but like, so like, I don't know that, that part of it. I just, I like the, I mean, I'm a collector, I think, and in, in a lot of ways. And I love, um, I love reading through liner notes and looking at lyrics and all that stuff. And so I'm continuing to do that with my own records, even when I'm not sure if it's economically a good idea, you know, the packaging for this record, I'm sure will be amazing. And I'll, you know, make sure that there's a big booklet where you can read through the lyrics. So if someone wants to sit down and hear what I'm saying, they can, because I find that when I do that, when I listen to something, I get so much more out of it than I would if I'm just streaming it through my phone. Yeah. And then looking on the website for the lyrics or something is just not the same. It's nice having it in your hands. Yeah. Uh, Grammy Awards. How much, how, how, how has that been for you? You know, going out and being nominated for Grammys? Um, I mean, it's been amazing. Uh, it's always a little bit absurd because, um, so much of the Grammys, at least from the public eye are, um, based around the award show, which is certainly much more giant pop artists, um, performing on television than it is about what the Grammys are, uh, purporting to do, which is, you know, create a, an award where it's actually musicians voting for musicians and, uh, and, you know, there's all of these amazing genres of music that don't get represented on the award show. So going there 
and seeing some of that stuff is amazing because I mean I got to see Kendrick Lamar you know perform and the time that he had that giant fire uh stage show I could feel the heat in the audience and and you know incredible to get to see those kind of performers live so that part of it is amazing um and uh you know coming across people across the room you're like oh my gosh that's <laughs> there's Elvis Costello and he's walking the same direction I am or whatever it is uh that stuff is fun um but uh you know i think uh, making these records and just knowing that my peers that also make music and children's music respect what i do and and uh and uh honor it that way is pretty exciting uh yeah so yeah i think when i wrote about i think when you got your first grammy nomination I, I did a story on you. What was that? 2010, I think I wrote. Uh-huh. It was the first time I wrote about you. And uh, and Robbie Falks uh, mentioned him again. He said that uh, he'd written that uh, you're you're somewhat in the position of the token Welsh art film for Best Picture at the Oscars, which makes rooting for him all the more pleasurable. <laughs> <laughs> which, that, is a, which is a perfect Robbie like thing Robbie. to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also, like again, you're a guy who you're in the industry, but you're releasing all of your own stuff. You're not affiliated with a major label, and yet you've had four albums nominated uh for a grammy so that's pretty amazing yeah um yeah and i think uh it you know 2010 uh that was maybe my eighth or ninth record or something like that and i'd been doing it since 97 so it's like it took a long time to get represent to get recognized by peers in the industry but i mean other musicians basically but um you know, meant a lot because I'd been working on it a long time before I ever got that first nomination. And it was really nice because I'd had other records that I thought would get nominated and didn't, you know, but I had other musicians say, oh man, I love that record. I really wish it had gotten recognized. Yeah. I mean, you had Jungle Gym and Recess and then Lemonade and Wildlife, all of them uh, nominated. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's amazing. (laughs) Uh, It's not even a question, but it's, it's pretty cool. Good for people to know about it. Um, in terms of performing live, obviously it's been a pretty dry spell because of pandemic. Are you sort of amping up to try to get back to doing a lot more shows again? Yes, absolutely. It's still been uh, a little tenuous, I think, um, with some of the performing arts centers, especially with kids shows without vaccination for young kids. Um, but things are starting to come together uh, there's, I have some, uh, shows happening in this summer. We're actually heading out the last show I played like the real, I mean, I played a couple things during the pandemic, but the last real show I played was in Denver at the Newman center, uh, in March of 2019. I get so confused with years now with this, right. this block, <laughs> but anyway, I'm, we're going back to, uh, to Colorado in April, uh, to play some shows, um, in Steamboat Springs, which will be fun. Is that the full band? Uh, it's the trio. Okay. Me and Gerald and, and Liam Davis, uh, playing bass in that configuration. Um, but we have some stuff happening this summer and some dates scheduled for the fall. I mean, but truthfully, like I've learned that <laughs> you can't trust anything. You never know when like some wave's going to come or something's going to happen. Like we never had canceled shows before. And, we had a, a show canceled this March that was supposed to happen uh, in the 
uh, Virginia or North Carolina or somewhere that had been rescheduled once and then, you know, rescheduled a year later and then canceled. And so it's been tough in general trying to figure that out, but I'm hoping with a new record, uh, you know, I can get back to that. So the album's called Space Cadet? It is, yeah. And when is it coming out? Uh, I'm not sure yet. It's um, Liam's currently mixing it, and uh, then it'll go to mastering. And once I have that process done, I'm going to look at the dates. You always have to do things way out ahead, both for the publicist to be able to get behind it, but also the way it works now, you know, streaming services will uh, release a bunch of singles off the album, every week or so until the album actually comes out. So you sort of even push it out a little farther for the final release. You're like shooting a video or videos. Yeah. I'm shooting some videos. My, my sister who did, uh, Stacy, uh, Robert Steele. I'm trying to make sure I get her name right. Sorry. Um, uh, my sister filmed some videos for lemonade for me. And, uh, she offered to, to try to do one for this. And so we're still talking about that, but I'm also um, thinking about using an animator and, and doing some green screen for another, uh, for another video. Uh, and I'm planning up a, a photo shoot with Todd Rosenberg, who I've been working with. Oh, nice. Since 2000 or something like that, which is crazy, but he's done like all my promo shots and he's awesome. And we're planning a really hilarious, uh, lost in space kind of looking promo shot for this record. So well, I'm going to call Todd and see if I could photo bomb. I want to be on Pluto in yeah. the background. Actually, Todd did a, a, like during the pandemic, we recorded a video for, um, for a song from wildlife and, uh, Todd shot that in, um, uh, in a park in Chicago. And, uh, it's beautiful. He's such a master of light and everything. He's, he's so great. So, uh, final two questions. One, uh, coffee versus espresso of the many things that I have obsessions with coffee fits in that category. And for the longest time I would make espresso at home and tried to get it pretty good. But a while back, I just started doing, uh, pour over coffee again and enjoyed the subtleties of coffee compared to espresso. But I really like, I like brewed coffee these days, uh, just cause unless I go somewhere and they can make the espresso perfect. But like, I, I find a lot of trouble finding like something that I really love. Cause it has to cut through. I like a cappuccino. I like it small, you know, with two shots and the right amount of milk and I don't know. See, that's why it's I went from to cappuccino to cortado because I wanted snub. to downgrade the amount of yeah. milk I had in it. And I was going down even farther to the macchiato, but then sometimes it would be a little, depends on the espresso, because sometimes the espresso is yeah. too harsh. If it's like really citrusy, you need a little more of the milk in it, Yeah, I think. And I'm not a big milk fan. But when it's, I mean, when that's really well done, it, it can be like the greatest thing in the world. But I think you need like a commercial espresso machine to make that happen. But So you've given up on making the espresso at home? I have... I tried it again recently. I have an espresso machine that I used for 10 years, and then I just started getting into brewed coffee. But I tried it again. It's hard. It's There's a, you know, there's an art to it. And I think, uh, I mean, a lot of it has to do with that commercial level of machine that they have in store in, in good coffee shops. When Justin made his pour over, he he measures everything. He's got the, the, the scale. Um, it was a very precise uh 
it was it was a very precise professional job. It's delicious. Um, so if if there's a bundle you can get of Space Cadet where you get the album and he'll make you a pour over, you should definitely take advantage of it. That's great. <laughs> All right, let's say for some reason we won't get into, you have to run out of your house and just take one album with you. What's that oh. album that you're going to grab on your way out? Oh my gosh. I've heard you ask other people this and I never even thought of it myself. Well, I keep forgetting to ask people, but I remember to ask you because I have all these records right in front of me. So it makes me think about it. Uh, let me think about it for a second. I guess I will. Yeah. I mean the, the record that I, I, I often create top, you know, top five and 10 records in my head and, um, they vary all the time, but I would say the one that probably never leaves the number one spot is Beach Boys Pet Sounds. So that would probably be what I would take. Absolutely. And, you know, and you since you have that Pet Sounds Sessions box behind you, you, you could grab that. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it, it won't be any harder to carry than just the actual record. Although you might want it on vinyl, but yeah. that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's, a, that's an impossible choice for sure. But uh, that record, I came to that pretty late. Uh, I, I actually... Uh, the Beach Boys were like an early group from my childhood because, as I said, my brother was a Beatles fan, and he at one point told me that I couldn't listen to the Beatles because they were his band. And so <laughs> I went to the record store and looked in the BEA section and still and found the Beach Boys and bought like Surf and Safari or something and uh, became a Beach Boys fan as a kid, but then never really heard Pet Sounds because it was, you know, I don't know, it wasn't like the hits and, and, eventually fell out with think you know listening to the beach boys and then in college somebody played me pet sounds and i just lost my mind and and then got way into everything <laughs> they did yeah at first when i heard pet sounds it was like when i was listening to you know elvis costello and rem and all that and i thought oh this is kind of easy listening and then i put it on again like right after college and i was living alone and having a hard time and i was like oh this is what it's speaking to. Yeah. It's just like all these like sad, lonely, melancholy, beautiful songs. Oh and then it gosh. totally got under my skin and never left. I love, I would just, my son Eli's been on a big Beach Boys kick and mostly listening to Smile stuff. But I've kind of guided him a little bit to listen to some of the pet sounds. And uh, I just wasn't made for these times, you know, came on as he's going through the CD numbers on the thing. And, just playing in the background and I just hadn't heard it in a while. And it's just like, so amazing. Like that, that chorus is so good. <laughs> That's but great. Love it. Well, Justin, thank you so much for being on Carol pop. It's yeah, a pleasure to have to you be we'll, here. We'll do uh we'll do uh follow up episodes where we'll, I don't know, break down other music or something like that. And, yeah. Uh, or just, you can have a little side thing. That's just all about coffee and we we'll do, a, to- we'll do a coffee episode <laughs> and maybe we'll have a listening party or, yeah. with a uh, space cadet too. That'd be great. It's so, awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. You don't even need a ticket for the train Everybody get on board Listen how they're calling out your name Everybody get on board It doesn't matter what clothes you wear It doesn't matter how you do your hair It doesn't matter who you're here to We're all standing under stars above Just waiting for the open chord So everyone can get on board 
never seen a train so long Everybody get on board Listen to the whistle blowing its song Everybody get on board We got the sugar and the lime But we only got so much time So why take a rigid stance when you could grab a partner, learn to dance Maybe play an open chord So everyone can get on board They're calling out from every door Everybody get on sinners and the saints sometimes you're perfect other times you ain't but we all got a beating heart every day is like a brand new start to try and play an open chord so everyone can get on That's it for episode 29 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Justin Roberts for the excellent conversation, music, and coffee. You can find and buy all of his music and more at his website, justinrobertsmusic.com. Justin also will be performing live this summer with and without the Not Ready for Naptime players. And keep an eye and an ear out for his new album, Space Cadet. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who also recorded this episode on location and probably is ready for nap time. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks.